Okay, so chapter 12 here is a continuation of this long argument that we started a couple weeks ago with Paul making this sort of big defense about why he's a true apostle, why the church should give heed to his ministry and not the ministry of these false teachers that are rising up and trying to take the preeminence and leadership for themselves. They've been like condemning Paul saying, oh, Paul, he's not, he doesn't have good rhetoric. Paul, he doesn't even take money from you guys. Like, what does he even think of himself if he's not even going to charge you guys money? Uh, Things like that. And so Paul's here continuing his uh, defense of his ministry. So he starts off in verse 1. Boasting is necessary, but it's not profitable, right? He's been saying this whole time, this whole boasting thing, having to commend your ministry, really is, I hate that I have to do this. This is kind of a fool's errand, but... This is necessary for me to prove myself to you guys, though kind of I wish I didn't have to do it. That's kind of the gist here. Uh, I will move on, though, to visions and revelations of the Lord. We remember he ended last time giving that long list of all his sufferings. He received the lashes, shipwrecked, and how he said his sufferings proved the the strength and integrity of his ministry. And so now he's going to move on to the next thing that proves his ministry, or which he could boast about if he wished which is visions and revelations of the Lord. And this is the example he gives. And uh, he speaks here in the third person, but he's actually talking about himself. Uh, We can surmise from how he concludes this discussion. So he's kind of uh, in a sidewise way talking about himself here. He says in verse two, I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being's not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself except in my weakness. So Paul here is pointing to this experience he had spiritually 14 years ago, uh, which makes us think, first of all, that this wasn't like a regular occurrence for Paul. This was a dramatic experience 14 years ago. So We can surmise that most likely he was not having these sorts of wild spiritual experiences very often. And this experience seems pretty crazy. He was caught up, he says, to the third heaven or into paradise, right? So in the Bible, the first heaven is sort of the sky where the birds live. The second heaven is, you know, where the sun, moon, and stars are. And then the third heaven is where God is or the the heavenlies, uh, which is not probably a physical part of this universe. We don't really know, but it's where the presence of God is. It's where God sits, this third heaven or paradise. Uh, Verse four, he calls this same place paradise, which is also the term Jesus uses. If you remember with the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And just like as an aside, I was thinking about this and thinking that we don't really use the word paradise for heaven almost at all. And I don't know if that's just because Islam sort of co-opted that. And so maybe there's too many uh, Muslim connotations with using paradise to refer to heaven. But I wonder if we thought of in that terms, if it it might change our idea a little bit. You know, heaven can sort of sound often ethereal. And we often get those images of, you know, the clouds and the harps and just floaty spirits. But um, the idea of paradise, it's like, oh, wow, like paradise, that sounds... Uh, more tangible, more earthy, more real. And um, I just, there's just something pretty about that word. I don't know. Maybe we should use it more. Paradise. But anyways, the third heaven. 
And he says that he doesn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. So Paul is saying that he might have had what we would call today an out-of-body experience. And right on the front, this is really odd to us because in general, I think most of us are pretty uncomfortable with the idea of sort of ecstatic spiritual experiences. He talks about visions and revelations in a potential in the body, like teleportation or a, uh, an out-of-body translation into some heavenly realm. Uh, this sounds like the stuff of, you know, New Age mysticism, um, ecstatic Hinduism, but this is an experience Paul had. And I don't really know personally what to make of it. Um, if you guys know my background, I grew up in really charismatic circles. So people claimed that this was actually a pretty common thing. Um, I remember preachers that would talk about how, uh, how like, Adam and Moses would like appear in their house and just like chat with them and they would like go up to heaven all the time to hang out with God. Uh, That was something people claimed. I don't really think any of it was true. But I think the question for us is, so we think on one hand about say spiritual gifts and we understand that there were some things in the Bible that were particular to that time. We'll actually read a little later about the signs of an apostle. When we think of miracles and prophecy and tongues and stuff like that, But then this other category of just spiritual experience. Paul here had a wild spiritual experience. And I don't have the answer to this, but a question that this makes me think of is just, what is our range of allowable spiritual experience? And I'm not really sure where that range ought to end. Um, We believe that in a sense, we can experience the presence of God. His presence is with us in worship. And I think most of us have known particular times maybe in worship or in prayer where there is something maybe a bit different, something about God that seems a bit more real to us or something um, that our heart was moved in a unique way. And how far that could go, I don't really know. But Paul had a wild experience. It was not common for him. He was an apostle. So maybe it never happens again. But um, there are stories where Um, I'm sure many of us have heard about people in Middle Eastern countries who see visions that lead to their salvation um, or things like that. And although I don't know how we can discern always what is a real spiritual experience versus false, um, I think we at least ought to have some sort of openness that God can kind of do whatever he wants, right? God is sovereign. And so if we limit God based on just what we think makes sense, we're probably erring a bit. Um, We don't want to believe everything we hear, but I think just based on Paul's example, God can do pretty um, significant spiritual workings in people's lives. We know that no one can claim that they can overwrite scripture or have true prophetic revelations in that way, but I think just to challenge us to not always um, discount every claim to spiritual experience. I don't know. Does anyone have any questions about that? I know that's a bit um, out of the ordinary for us, but I just feel like Paul had this experience, and we should think something of it. Yeah. Do you think it's our culture as well? Like, the Dutch, I don't know what, I mean, there's probably a lot of Dutch presence here, but, like, we are taught, like, you don't talk about feelings, you don't talk about, like, you're supposed to keep it all in. So I noticed, like, in other cultures, like, they're more open to it. So, I mean, to say, like, I don't know, I feel like it's cultural of how we express it, because we don't want to say, oh, you're going to think I'm crazy, like I felt the Holy Spirit, where I think mm-hmm. we 
know, expressed it more and be more common. Oh, I, definitely. I think 100% that's true. So yeah. I, just, I don't know if it's just one from Michigan. Experienced different cultures. Mm -hmm. I heard too at one point um, because of how close he always was to the so often that when you read the verses, um, you know, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows that they mm -hmm. said it might have been at one of these points when he was, you know, you know, right. you hear, right. I've been to heaven for 45 seconds or something and I came back, right, where they were. I've heard that thought. I don't know what you think. Right, so like this might have been an experience Paul had on death's door kind of thing, potentially. Right? Yeah, I, I could see that. I think it's important for us to remember, too, that as much as the spiritual world is real, that's where Satan operates, too. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't, it doesn't mean that every experience that we have from the spiritual world is from God. Right. Yeah, and I think in general, when I think these things, um, from my many years in the really intense charismatic movement, the kind of, there's only really three options when we consider spiritual experience. It's either of God, it's of the devil, or it's of our own minds. And my general outlook is that most things that people claim are just the workings of their own mind. Things like, whether it's a mass hysteria or just our minds are really powerful. And we can convince ourselves of a lot of things. Um, we know just if someone's brain is mentally ill in a sense, they can have experiences that seem real to them that aren't. So my usual take on spiritual experience when people claim radical things is that it's probably their own mind, uh, but there's also satanic experiences. But then I think there can be genuine spiritual experiences, and I don't want to dis discount the possibility of someone having a radical spiritual experience. I think that's my, really my point here. I don't want to discount that it's possible. Hmm. Or, you know, where it says the old? Right, in Acts 2, you're, the old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. Yeah, I, I, like, I think he's talking about the, the church age now. So, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, yeah, what we should think about what those visions or dreams could be. I know, actually, that um, in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, even in Scotland today, in churches that would be, like, more conservative than the OPC by a lot, uh, they believe that God speaks in dreams and they will think through what God might be saying in dreams. Um, David Murray was telling me that in, uh, in thought the seminary one time. And um, here that seems really weird that you would even consider dreams could be from God. But in the strict Scottish church, they're actually open to it, which I just thought was interesting. So anyways, he says, he was caught up there. He heard inexpressible words, which a human beings not allowed to speak. Really crazy. It's like, why can't you say what you heard? Just, this is wild. Similar thing we see with John in Revelation. He says, about this person, I will boast. Um, or I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weakness. So he's kind of uh, saying, like, I could claim this as, like, my spiritual authority, but I want to go back to the weakness, because that's where the real power is. He says, if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. Or he's saying, like, I could legitimately boast about this. I didn't make this up. This is a real thing that happened. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. I think just something we can take away here, just this idea of Paul that I don't want people to think more of me than what they've actually seen or heard of me in their experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where 
you kind of have maybe done something to offend someone and they have a low opinion of you a little bit. And you're like, but I'm actually like so much of a better person than that. Like if you actually just knew me, I'm such a great person. But to be like, actually my actions spoke otherwise. And I can't just claim that you must think well of me when I've actually not given you reason to. We want to be people who actually in our actions, in people's experience of us, they would think well of us. Um, there's something called the, uh, this is a half a side thing, but um, in psychology it's called the spotlight effect. And the spotlight effect is where our natural perception is that people think about us way more than we do. It's almost as if like we're walking around, we feel like a spotlight's on us. Um, and the studies have shown that people care way less what you're wearing than you think they do. They care way less about the embarrassing thing you did than they think you do. We just, we feel like everyone's looking at us and actually cares about what we do, but most people don't really care about other people, just themselves. So anyways, we don't need to try to hype up ourselves to people. Let's just be genuine and loving and not take ourselves too seriously. Anyways, okay, here's, here's, the, here's the big meaty part of this uh, chapter I really want us to spend some time on. Okay, halfway through verse 7. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. Here we're seeing how does Paul think about and respond to his suffering. And I think this is a really balanced way to look at it that I think is really informative and helpful for us. So he's talking about, I could have been so lifted up by these extraordinary revelations but I had this, this infirmity in my flesh that really brought me low. A thorn in his flesh, we don't know exactly what it is. The idea that it's in the flesh might be it's a physical infirmity. There's hints in the letters that Paul had pretty severe eye problems. He says uh, in Galatians that the church would have plucked out their own eyes and given to him, them to him if he needed them. And he writes elsewhere, see with what large letters I write to you with my own hand. So... It seems Paul definitely had some eye problem. Maybe it was that. Maybe it's, it was um, an issue with sin that was troublesome or with someone else, but we don't know. But most likely some physical infirmity, but whatever it was, it was something that brought him low, something that pressed him down, something that weighed on him heavily, right? We can all think of things like that in our lives. And so here's, here's what I think is really helpful for us in this, is how Paul thinks of suffering in terms of both God and Satan. And there are two major errors with how we think about suffering in this life. The first error is the error we see usually in more general evangelical non-reformed circles, which is to say that all our suffering is just from Satan, from the devil, and God just wants us to be healed, and the only reason we're not is because we don't have enough faith. And God, he doesn't want that at all. God's just totally against that, and then Satan's afflicting us, right? And we know that that's wrong because God is sovereign. But then there's another error on the opposite side, which I think we're more prone to, which is to say that this suffering is just God's good gift to me. And this is just God's uh, delightful desire for me. I've heard, uh, um, I heard a speaker one time saying how his wife had cancer, and he said, 
God went shopping down the aisles of heaven to find the best, most perfect gift for my wife, and he gave her cancer. And even though there there's, is a sense in which you could say that that's true, that nothing happens apart from God's will, that's an overreaction that doesn't recognize the presence of Satan and suffering. Okay, so look at what Paul does here. He says that this thorn was given to him. Okay, that's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, that this was granted or given by God. Yet, he calls it a messenger of Satan, a tormenting messenger of Satan. And we need to be able to consider our sufferings, um, the evils in this world that afflict us, as satanic messengers. And if we don't have the perspective that something can at the same time be something God can use for good, something that's not outside of his control, but also at the same time it can be considered a satanic messenger, that's the balance we need to hold as Christians when we consider our suffering. If, you, if we remember the series on the book of Job, there are various times throughout the book where the suffering is sometimes attributed to God. God did this. And then at other times, it's attributed to Satan because both are true. Um, I'm not sure if any of you guys have studied Aristotelian causality, but um, the philosopher Aristotle distinguished between four different types of causes. We usually just think of a cause as a cause, but there's different types of causes, right? So like if we're writing, um, I am in a sense causing what's written to be written, but also is the pen. The pen would be considered the instrumental cause. It's the instrument, not the ultimate cause. And so when we think of suffering, we can think of God and Satan both being causes. Satan is the instrumental cause. Satan um, and evil is the immediate um, one that is causing suffering. So it's right to attribute this suffering to evil in this world. But at a higher level, God is sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside of his control. So we can attribute things to God as well. And we need to be able to hold both. Our confession talks about secondary causes. And the world we live in is a world of secondary causes. And we saw earlier in this letter, sometimes um, Paul attributes things to Titus. Or sometimes things Titus did, he attributes to God. Because we can see both the primary cause God, but also the secondary cause, a person that's wronged you. Or Satan that's sent a tormenting messenger. You guys following me so far? Okay. And any questions before I keep going on this? Because I got some more. Yeah, Andrew. What are the other types of causes? I forget the terms. I don't have a perfect memory. That's fine. But I know there's four. And actually, if you have the Geneva Study Bible, not the new Geneva Study Bible that Ligonier did, but the original one from 1599, they actually use Aristotelian causality all the time in how they describe scripture. And if you don't have it, I'd highly recommend it. Sidebar. But the Geneva Study Bible was the first study Bible ever written. It was the first Bible with verses ever written. And it was written by the likes of John Calvin and Theodore Beza. This is before the King James was made. And this was the Bible of the reformers and of everyone at that time. And King James didn't like it because it spoke highly of the sovereignty of God, the doctrines of grace, and it spoke against tyrants, which the kings didn't like either. So that's why he commissioned the King James Version to say, I don't want any study notes so that people can see what the reformers think. And um, 
I don't want anything that speaks against my authority particularly. So that's actually why they made the King James Version. But anyways, and the Geneva Bible from 1599 is actually more readable than the King James Version because the King James actually purposely used an older form of English um, that wasn't even current at that time. So actually, I recommend looking up the Geneva Bible. You can find it on Bible Gateway. Copies are hard to find on Amazon. Anyways, I'm wasting time. Okay, so um, when we're considering suffering and the will of God, we can think of it um, in the same ways as the hidden will of God versus the revealed will of God. Okay, so we understand that God has a hidden will, which we don't know. We don't know what God has purposed for us in our future. God knows that. We don't know always exactly why God has allowed us suffering, right? Everything is unfolding according to God's hidden, decreed will. But we also have God's revealed will in scripture for how he wills this world to be. We see in Genesis, we see in Revelation, God's will for this world is perfect peace. No suffering, perfect love and harmony. Therefore, any suffering we experience that's out of accords with God's design of the world, we can say, in a sense, is against God's will. It's contrary to his intended purposes for humanity. So it's okay to consider the diseases we carry, the sufferings we endure, as evil and as contrary to God because they are in his revealed will. And I think we need to spend more time actually living in the revealed will of God living considering secondary causes and not allow the ultimacy of God's sovereignty to override how we think and act in real life. And um, probably uh, John, John McGeehan has covered some of that in the Just Do Something book, which is a good one about decision-making on the will of God. And so, okay, look at verse 8. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would lead me. Even though God has sovereign purposes in our suffering, it's okay to plead with him to take it away. Like Christ in the garden, to cry out with blood to remove this. We don't have to always have a sort of resigned, well, I guess I'll ask you, God, to take this away if it's your will. No, plead, but then, like Christ, resign yourself to your good and faithful creator, knowing that whether he takes it away or not, he will still be good to you. And that's where our comfort, like Paul says here, is that God's response is that even if this suffering never leaves, even if you have to bear it a long while, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And one of God's purposes we know in our suffering is to draw us closer to him, to have a deeper experience of his grace and to know the sufficiency of his grace and his power. Because it's not usually till we're brought to our knees to the end of our rope, and realize our utter neediness, our utter dependency, that we really do look to God as everything we have. Because when everything is stripped away, that's when we most easily experience the sufficiency of God's grace. And that's why in the severest suffering, we can rest in God and take comfort in him because his grace, or we could really think his goodness, is enough. And so one way that in our suffering we can test our hearts to see whether we're suffering with the right attitude is to see whether we're finding God's grace sufficient in that time. If we're not finding God's grace sufficient, then our attitude in suffering will be one of uh, frustration and um, almost arguing and um, complaining against God that 
how could this happen to me? How could I be here? And if I don't have this suffering relieved, I can never be content or happy. Um, That's an attitude that's not finding God's grace sufficient in the suffering. But if we can say, yes, I'm pleading God to take this away, yet even if you don't, you are good. You are enough and I trust you. That's the attitude we want to have. Because that's where we find God's power. God's power meets us in our greatest need. So I will gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. Even he says in verse 10, I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or to fill out that last phrase, when I'm weak in the flesh, that's when I find myself to be strong in grace. And I'm sure many of us can attest to that. When we've found ourselves weak in this world, that's often the times where we've found ourselves most strong in grace. And even in that, we can see a goodness of God, that God allowed our weakness to bring strengthening grace to us. Because when everything is going well, it's easy to forget God, right? We know how quickly we forget the Lord. So anyway, any, anyone have anything to add to that? Comments, questions as we think about suffering, sovereignty of God, his work in our own lives? I'm sure everyone has a story, you know, where uh, they found grace and weakness. Because the Christian life is a suffering life, right? We, um, this is the time of the cross, not yet the time of the crown. And we'll have glory one day, and we get tastes of it here, but largely our life now is the life of Christ on earth. One of, um, where he was a man acquainted with grief, one who knew sorrows. Okay, verse 11. He's, gonna, he's going back to his big argument here. I've been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I'm not in any way inferior to those super apostles, even though I'm not, nothing. He's saying, you shouldn't have had, um, you shouldn't have believed these false teachers when they condemned me. He's like, you guys should have commended me. You guys knew that I was an apostle and you're making me defend myself to you? He says, the signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs, wonders, and miracles. He's saying, you saw among you that I did signs, wonders, and miracles. What more proof of my apostolic credentials do you need? Like, why am I defending myself to you again? Um, One thing we can learn here is that um, what we kind of alluded to earlier, he talks about the signs of an apostle. Signs, wonders, and miracles. And in the New Testament, we see that miraculous signs, things like healings and um, things that happened like that, were particularly surrounding the ministry of the apostles. They were even considered signs of an apostle. He doesn't say these are the signs of an average Christian. And that's where uh, Pentecostal theology gets it wrong. They consider that the signs that Jesus and the apostles did are meant to be normative for all Christians. That's what they teach. They teach that the book of Acts, or even the life and ministry of Christ, represents what a normal Christian life should look like. The same amount of miracles, the same amount of healings and resurrections. But they miss the particular uniqueness of these signs as attesting to apostolic ministry, right? And the apostles were particular witnesses for Christ, tasked to lay down the foundation of the church. They were meant particularly for that time, 
not for all time. Any, any thoughts or questions on that? So in what way are you worse off than the other churches? Except that I personally did not burden you. He's uh, alluding back again to burdening them with money. I didn't burden you taking payment from you. Forgive me for this wrong. He's like, I can't believe you're complaining that I didn't take money from you. Like, that's weird. Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. Okay, a third trip to them. I will not burden you. He's not going to take money from them. Since I'm not seeking what is yours, right? I don't want your money, but you. Here we just see Paul's apostolic ministerial heart so beautifully. I want you guys. I want your hearts. I want your hearts for Christ. I want your obedience for Christ. Because I'm like a parent here. Um, children, that is, he's referring to the church, ought not save up for their parents. He's like, I don't need from you guys parents for their children. He says, I'm here to give myself to you. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He's saying, it, I love you more when I don't take money from you. And yet you love me yet, yet less for that. Um, verse 15 here, I think, is one we can all really take to heart. Um, this is the heart of service in the Christian life that we want. When we think of others that we have influence over or can serve, this idea of I will most gladly spend and be spent for you, for your good. For your edification, whether that's parents, that's your heart to your children, or leaders in the church or in Bible studies or in Sunday schools, the heart for the people is, I'll gladly spend myself for your good. Um, sacrifice in the Christian life should be joyful, not just dutiful. If you think of um, when do you get gladness or when are you happy to spend money? Right? Most, no one is pumping gas being like, I love paying for gas. It's like a necessary evil, right? But if you, say, are with your grandkids or with nieces and nephews, and you're having a day at the park and there's like ice cream that you can get, you're like, I would love to buy ice cream. It doesn't bother me at all paying for this ice cream because I will gladly spend in order to give you kids the joy of a summer day with ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Depending on how we consider the product, um, we will either have an unhappiness or a happiness to spend for it. And if we see people's spiritual good, the spiritual good of our families, our brothers and sisters in the church, we will find it our joy to uh, be more tired for someone's spiritual good, to be a little less wealthy for someone else's good. Um, the spending becomes a glad spending when we actually see the true spiritual value of what we're doing. He says, granted, I did not burden you, yet, uh, sarcastically here, sly as I am, I took you by deceit. Uh, that's what they're saying. He took them by deceit. Uh, did I take advantage of any of you by those I sent to you? So he's saying, even the people I sent you, like Titus, they didn't take advantage of you and mistreat you. Um, I urged Titus to go. I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? He's saying, all my people have been upright and had integrity. Have you been thinking all along, verse 19, that we were defending ourselves to you? No, in the sight of God, we're speaking in Christ. So he says, like, we're not defending ourselves for our sake. We're speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. He's saying, I'm not defending my ministry to build myself up, but because I want to build you up. I want to see you edified. 
right? That's what the word edified, that kind of Christian-y word we use. Edified just means built up, built on the foundation of Christ, built with faith, hope, and love, with theology, morality, spirituality, all these things. Everything was for building you up. And really, actually, everything here at Grace Fellowship is meant for building God's people up. Our worship services are meant for building up God's people. These, all our Sunday school classes are meant for building up God's people. Our small groups are meant for building up God's people. That's, that's the unifying focus of church ministry, is edification. I fear, though, that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want. And you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. This is what Paul's worried about finding in the church. Was that a question? Head scratch? Head scratch. Okay. Um, just like take a look at this list here, and let's be cognizant in ourselves. Do we show individually any of these signs? And do we see any of these infiltrating this church? Because if so, we need to take stock and fight against them. Um, let's not be quarreling people, right? We live a culture is so quarrelsome right now, isn't it? Right? We see so much quarreling all around us. Um, jealousy. Um, jealousy for people who have influence or jealousy that someone's life is going better than ours. Angry outbursts, right? We're not to be people of angry outbursts. Selfish ambitions, slander. Um, it's really common. Um, I'm sure all of us have seen slander, right? Speaking evil of other people because it ends up being that next word, that juicy gossip, really hearing what's going on in the church. What are, what are the deeds? What's the juice? What's going on? Um, Proverbs calls them tasty morsels, right? People love hearing um, you know, oh, what are the problems in the church, right? That's, what, like, that's what's interesting to people. It's like, what's wrong in the church? Uh, let's, let's not spread those things and sow discord. Arrogance and disorder, right? Let's put aside our pride, put aside disorder. He says, I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented. Paul's great fear is that he'll see a church where people are in unrepentant sin. And he'll just be so grieved in his heart that people are walking in a way of death instead of a way of life. People who have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and the sensuality they practiced. Right? Remember, Corinth was a very sexual culture. Temple, cult, prostitution, rampant, all these things. In the first letter, someone gets excommunicated from the church for an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. Or sorry, his like, father's new wife. Um, this was just a, it was not a nice place to be on that level. And it says people just aren't repenting of this and it's grievous. But notice that Paul actually, he doesn't excommunicate all these people right away. Even though they're living in immorality, Paul was slow to go to that final step. He wanted people's souls. He worked with them. He pleaded with them to return to Christ. And excommunication is for those who are obstinate and don't repent. Anyways, chapter 12. Um, any thoughts, comments, questions in the last few minutes we have about anything in this chapter? He's intentionally not wanting to be the focus of 
the phrase. He wants God to be preeminent. So he's, you know, saying my weakness, even though I'm in my weakness, is still being faithful. But it's him that's doing it through me. Right, yeah, he always wants to take, he's at the low place so that God is exalted. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a line in a song I like where um, the singer says, I fall to my knees so it's you that they see, not I. Jesus, you be lifted high. And it's like that idea, it's like, it's like almost like if we're standing high, it's almost like we're covering God. But if we get low, people then can see clearly God through us. I just, I just like that mental picture. Any final things before we close in prayer? Alrighty, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust your goodness, that we can trust your grace, and we do ask and pray that we will find such sufficiency in your grace all our days. We will be content with your presence. And even when many of our comforts in life are stripped away, would you be enough for us? Uh, Would you be more than enough? Would we find utter, deep soul satisfaction in you that you would remind us to come to that unbroken cistern, the one that holds water and that we would drink deeply of the rivers of life. Lord, um, I ask for any here that are um, in a season of suffering right now, that are feeling weighed down by the world, that they they would be able at the same time to plead with you to take it away, to recognize the evil of the sin in this broken world, but also to trust your fatherly goodness and your sovereign power. Lord, we also ask that you will bless our time of worship as we gather together to sing your praise, that we will see your goodness more clearly, that we will feel the reality of your goodness deep in our hearts and learn to live as people conformed to your image, people relying on you. Would you keep us from um, the, the, the trappings of wealth and just ease in life that distracts us from you and lets us think that we're sufficient. God, show us that we need you every day, even in our best times. Help us to be like children depending on our loving Heavenly Father. We pray all these things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.